0: Good morning, afternoon, or night, whenever or wherever you happen to be. You're listening to Music in Theory, where we take deep dives into musical topics for listeners both nerdy and normal. I'm Brent Lawrence, and today we're talking about beautiful simplicity. That was the opening of Eric Satie's Gymnopédie No. 1, from 1888. Satie was a bit of an odd duck. As a student at the famed Paris Conservatoire, he was said to be the laziest and ungifted. Satie's image in music history is that of an esoteric contrarian. From accounts of dodging military service, the reason he dealt with his own lackluster performance at the Conservatoire, to his embrace of the Parisian bohemian lifestyle— Satie is known as classical music's token weirdo. And who's to say that this isn't true? Satie's most famous works, the Gymnopodes, are a complete satirical fabrication. Unlike the real forms handed down by the masters of yesteryear, like the sonata, the symphony, the prelude, and so on, the Gymnopodes are something Eric Satie simply made up. Even the word Gymnopode can only be defined through etymological speculation. Musically speaking, these pieces even feel contrary. They are very simple, with short melodies and undulating harmonies that don't really seem to go anywhere or develop into anything. But that's what I want to talk about today. That beautiful music doesn't need to be complex. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, beautiful music is often created by making small, seemingly insignificant decisions that have a great impact on the feel of a piece of music. And perhaps those tiny details are what people fall in love with. For instance, in reference to Eric Sati, a cursory glance of the internet yields many renditions of Sati's works, including the Gymnopodes and the similar Naussiens. So maybe it's worth taking a closer look. Maybe the beauty of pieces is in their simplicity, whether they're intended to be contrary or not. Two chords, two undulating chords, provide a foundation for this piece. These two chords switch back and forth like a slow, nebulous pendulum. They aren't imposing, they aren't taking you anywhere, they're just providing stasis, a palette of colors on which to build the rest of the piece. Satie tells us that this piece is in the key of D major, but he starts on a G major 7 chord and then goes to a D chord which is also a major seventh. In a way, Sati chooses these chords and orders them in such a way that disorients our ears. We just feel like we're pleasantly adrift, without direction or motion. Then this wonderful melody enters. It's unassuming. It draws no attention to itself. Like clouds in the sky, it lingers, just being where it happens to be, moving where it happens to move. But still, there's something about it. It's not that the piece is jarring or abrasive sounding, it has an openness to it, an ambiguousness. Even as the melody glides atop our G and D chords, it avoids notes that are most important to those chords until the very end of the phrase so it just drifts, letting the two underlying chords push it gently towards its point of rest. The pulse that Sati provides us gives us a feeling of 3-4 time, in a rhythm that reinforces the initial lazy undulations of the first two chords. With three beats in a measure, we feel an accent on every first beat. But when the melody comes in, it's a beat late it comes in on the second beat of the measure, which is one of the weaker places. The melody feels draggy and lilty, like it has to be coaxed into existence and swept along with the musical current. And because it's dragging behind and being swept along, an interesting rhythmic dissonance is created. This off-kilter feeling doesn't resolve until the end of the phrase, forcing us to really internalize the feeling of the 3-4 time, and long for its resolution. These two characteristics, the ambiguous harmonic language and off-kilter rhythms, aren't cerebral choices on the part of sati, but they create feeling, character, and color. Perhaps some will say these choices grind against the grain of good composition. But like our little lilty melody, I can't help but be swept along in their wake. They seem to say just the right thing at the right time. Now let's fast forward in time, about 40 years, to the early 20th century. In the late 1920s, the record industry was taking off and record producers were scouring the land to find their next best-selling record. Not completely by chance, a man from rural Southwest Virginia named A.P. Carter saw an advertisement for this and drove himself, his very pregnant wife, Sarah, and their sister-in-law, Maybelle through the valleys, creeks, and other hazardous conditions to record some music at Victor Records in Bristol, Tennessee. This was the beginning of the Carter family, a group that would become the progenitors of the mid 20th century folk revival with the likes of Bob Dylan, Peter Paul and Mary, Woody Guthrie and others, as well as the forerunners of the bluegrass and country genres that we know today. Their second recording session with Victor was in the spring of 1928, nine months or so after their first. From that recording session, they cut this song
1: Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side, keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way, if we keep on the sunny side of life.
0: Keep on the sunny side would become one of their best known songs, and it's been covered by everyone from the Avett Brothers to Brad Paisley. But to me, none of them capture the same essence as the original recording. There's something so unique, but so simple about this recording that makes it extremely catchy to me. And it has to do with the way the Carters sing a certain line of text. The chorus of the song starts with the words, keep on the sunny side. Normally, if you sing these words, you would put the word keep on the downbeat of the bar, so, for example, the first bar of the chorus would sound like this. Keep on sunny side, on sunny keep on sunny the reason for this is that keep is the first important word of the phrase. Therefore, you'd normally try to place it so that it's rhythmically stable. The first beat of the bar is a great place for that. And the same thing would be true even if a few words preceded it, like this. As you can hear, the emphasis still lies on the first beat of the bar with the word keep, and the words leading up to it are just auxiliary. But this isn't how the Carters sing it. Instead, they displace the phrase and put the word keep on the last beat of the preceding bar. But not only are the words displaced, the emphasis of the phrase is as well. Normally, if we set the words like this, keep on would be emphasized as keep on. But it isn't. The Carters literally shift the entire melodic structure back one beat. The result is that the measure in question is now three beats instead of four. Maybe I should let them demonstrate this time. This creates a tantalizing rhythmic dissonance that draws our ears in. It doesn't sound wrong, it doesn't sound disruptive, but the displacement gives it a feeling of moving forward. It's pushing us towards the next line, and even then the dissonance isn't completely resolved. In the second line, always on the sunny side, the word always falls on the downbeat. Normally, that's where we'd expect the word on to be. So we hear the emphasis always on instead of always on. The word always receives more emphasis than the word on. This is again displacing the text in a way that keeps the music moving forward and feels very on top of the beat. But in the third line, we finally hear the word keep on the downbeat. And as the phrase ends, we hear the displacement sink back into the place where we'd expect to hear it. So essentially what the Carters have done is move a line of music forward in time so that the lyrics land in a way that pushes the music forward and creates a trajectory for the phrase. Once we hear the initial displacement in the first line, Our ears are swept up by the rhythmic dissonance which pulls them along until it comes to rest during the third line of the chorus. This is such a simple concept. Like Eric Satie, the Carters here are doing little more than manipulating where a melody is placed in a measure. But they do it with so much attention to how the displacement will affect the feel of the song. And to me, that's the beauty and the genius of it. The last piece of music I'd like to talk about is Africa, the classic 80s anthem by Toto. As opposed to the other two examples where we talked about very specific passages, I want to talk about a single element that exerts its influence throughout the song. And as it happens, that element is the first thing we hear. This hook, this short, catchy phrase, is the agent that propels the song forward. It's nothing complex, just three chords, A, G-sharp minor, and C-sharp minor, played in, admittedly, a super catchy rhythm. But let me set this up a little bit. For our purposes today, we'll say the song is fairly straightforward. I could probably ramble about the chords underlying the verse for at least an hour, but it'll suffice to say that this portion of the song feels pretty stable to our ears. We don't feel pushed in any particular direction. We're just going with the flow. But then something interesting happens. At the end of each phrase in the verse, the song is interrupted by the hook. In fact, the hook is the only thing that destabilizes the music and pushes us forward. It's almost as if the song is trying to escape the constant interjections of it. This is indeed what we find upon moving into the chorus of the song. The last phrase of the verse does not succumb to the influence of the hook. Rather, we hear it push past it, and with a drum fill, we're launched into a new chord progression. The The chorus feels pretty stable as well. Whereas the verse stabilizes around the key of C-sharp minor, the chorus hangs out in the territory of F-sharp minor. This is reinforced when at the end of each line we hear an E major chord leading us back to an F-sharp minor, a classic rock and roll move, and a very strong resolution. This resolution is made even stronger at the end of the chorus by throwing in a few extra chords. This is the strongest resolution in the entire song, and you don't just hear the F-sharp minor chord, you feel it in your gut. But it turns out to be short-lived. From this point of stability, we are whiplashed into a return of the hook from the beginning. And although unexpected, this is a move that makes a lot of sense. The hook, again, asserts its agency over the song and keeps it moving ever forward. That's the exciting part, that this hook that's so simple, only three chords after all, carries so much agency in this song and is felt so saliently. It's not complex or jarring or random sounding, but it serves to move the song forward and keep it from stagnating. A small reminder of the rains down in Africa. I hope you can see from our quick dive into these three pieces that deep, meaningful beauty doesn't have to be manifested in ways that are difficult to understand or execute. Rather, beauty is often about placing a small thing in exactly the right place and being attentive to how minute changes can affect the whole. When I listen to music, this is often what interests me. Why did they do that there? Why did they choose to play a G this time instead of an A? I find that, especially in popular genres of music, that there are many small, tiny details that give so much depth to the music and are felt so saliently. So I guess the takeaway here is that sometimes artistry manifests itself in small, seemingly insignificant choices instead of big, obvious ones. Well, that's all I have for the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. If you like what you heard, please visit me on the web at patreon.com slash musicintheory or you can go to one of the social media profiles listed in the show notes. This podcast is written, recorded, and produced by me, Brent Lawrence, in my apartment's spare bedroom, which is currently located in Eugene, Oregon. I hope you'll tune in next time, but until then, keep listening. This has been Music in Theory.